0: Well, good morning. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's a phrase that most of us are familiar with from you know, uh, TV crime procedural shows like you know, Law and Order. Uh, for some of us, we've, we've heard those words stated firsthand if we've been in a courtroom, on a jury, or we're a, a lawyer, or a court recorder, or a judge, or something like that. Uh, for a few of us, we've actually said those words in a courtroom. And what is spoken after we utter that phrase is called a testimony, right? Because we testify about what we've seen, about what we've heard, and what we have experienced. Now, we don't need a courtroom to testify. As as human beings, we are constantly testifying, giving testimony about the things we've seen, heard, and experienced. For example, we do it all the time. So you go to a game. you, You should have been at the game. It was so intense and so loud. Best game ever. We try a new restaurant, and we come back and say, that was an incredible restaurant. You have to go there. You could could cut the steaks with with a fork. Or or you've got to meet this guy. He is hilarious. You're gonna gonna love him. Funniest guy ever. All of us are constantly testifying about the things that we see and hear and experience in life. In fact, let's use that as a, a working definition. To testify is to share about the things we've seen, heard, or experienced. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes this dynamic that we have, our constant testifying in our world. He writes, The world rings with praises, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise the weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and he says this, Even... Even politicians or scholars kind of gets a little dig in. We testify all the time about the things that we've experienced and heard and seen. For example, many of you know that uh, that I love to hike and I love the mountains of Colorado. And there's a spot in the mountains of Colorado, the Sand Creek Lake Basin, that... that um, that I've gone to four or five, maybe six times over the years. I've gone with my boys, I've gone with friends, and it's a beautiful place. It's in the Sangre, Sangre de Cristo Mountains, about an hour west of Pueblo, and then maybe about a 30-minute drive south to the trailhead. And then you have to drive a four-wheel drive trail for about 30 minutes, pretty rough and bumpy. You stop about halfway up, then you have to hike another mile and a half to the top of the pass. Then you hike down into a valley, about a mile and a half, and you hike up to the lake, one of the lakes, about another mile and a half. So it's, it's a wonderful hike, but it's, it's not easy. And it's a special spot before me because I've experienced such incredible times with my, with my boys and, and family and friends over the years at this location. I'll give you a, a look at it right here. This is when you hit the top of the, uh, of the pass. Uh, about a mile and a half up and uh, it's, it reminds me of the first time I, it was like the sound of music, you know, Julie Andrews spinning around, the hills are alive you, you kind of want to burst into song and, and, and then you um, you see that pointy one, that's where we're headed there's a mountain, There's a lake at the bottom of that mountain and so you hike down into the valley and I've never failed to see bighorn sheep in the valley uh, and then you come to a stream uh, and there's trout in the stream and there's logs and you make your way across on the logs, that's kind of adventure when, you're, when you have little kids with you And then you hike up another mile and a half or so, mile and a quarter, through the trees until all of a sudden, right in front of you, comes this view. And it's the lake at at about 11,600 feet, the mountains, Mount Tahiris, about 13,600, and the lake is full of these huge cutthroat trout. The water is so clear, you can see all the way to the bottom, just waiting to be eaten, and they taste so good (laughs) after a long hike. Now, I've testified about this to some people in the church, actually, and, and there's, I know there's a few, a few individuals or families who have gone there because of my words about what I've experienced and seen and, and, and heard. When we are passionate about something, when we're truly passionate about something, when we've been impacted by something deeply and profoundly, we cannot help but give testimony about it or about them. Again, listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say. We not only spontaneously praise what we value, but instinctively urge others to join in our praise, rhetorically asking, Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that is magnificent? The question I want to look at today, or challenge you with, give you something to think about, is about what do you testify in your life? Or more importantly, maybe, about whom? Do you testify in your life? You know, this Sunday we're kicking off a four-week sermon series entitled Testify. And we're doing so for a few reasons. First, in the Bible we have many examples of God's people being urged and responding by giving praise and testifying to God's works. We just heard a passage read about that. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds of your saving acts all day long, Psalm 71. Over and over in the Psalms and the Prophets, throughout the Scriptures, God's people are urged to give voice to what God has done in them and in the world. Second, we're doing this because there is spiritual power. There is spiritual strength when we share about what God has done in our lives. There's a beautiful phrase in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and the setting is this. The Apostle John, is getting, he has a vision from God. And in the vision, he sees heaven. And, and there's God's armies and his angels. And there's Satan and his forces. And there's this titanic spiritual battle in heaven. And, and God and his angels, uh, and, and they throw out Satan and his forces. And then John hears a voice from heaven identifying how we as believers, what the source of our victory over Satan in, str- in our struggles is. Listen to this, they triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, and by the word of their testimony. So they triumph over Satan by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb. First, they triumph over what Christ has done for them through what Christ has done for them on the cross. The shed blood of Jesus covers their sins. It's, when Satan accuses them, the, covered blood of, the blood of Jesus covers them and, and Jesus stamps them as their own, as his own. And, and, and also it says, and by the word of their testimony. In other words, when we, when we give voice to the fact that we believe in Jesus, when we give testimony to what he's done in our lives, how he's saved us, how he's changed us, how he's intervened in our lives, uh, when we do those things, there is power and there is spiritual impact through and in the word of our testimony. Third, we're doing this because one of the things we're going to emphasize this year at FCC are our testimonies. The broad theme is the body of Christ. And we're asking the questions, how can we strengthen the body that we're a part of? How can we go deeper in Christ and how can we go further in our mission in, in, our, in its line and around the world? And we've identified, identified some certain things that we think are going to help us do that. But one of them is we want to hear each other's stories. We, we want to share our stories with each other because we're encouraged, aren't you? Aren't you encouraged when you hear somebody share about what God has done in their life? It's one of the best things I get to do as a pastor is to hear people give testimony to what God has done in their life. And so we're going to have some testimonies throughout this series. And then throughout the year, we'll, we'll sprinkle in testimonies as well in our worship services. So let's get started. Turn your Bibles, if you could or would, to John chapter 4. It's a long passage. I'm not going to read it all, but we're going to dip in and out. And we're going to allow this woman. There's a woman in this story, the woman at the well who has a life-encountering, powerful encounter with Jesus, and she gives testimony about it uh, towards the end of the story. So we're going to let her tell her story. I'll read through it. I'll make some comments. uh, And then we're going to hear from somebody in our church at the end who will share their story, their testimony. Verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he, Jesus, left Judea, And went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus was tired from the journey, and he sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Now, when we read the Bible, I mean, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. That the Bible is God's, He reveals Himself to us. He reveals who He is. He reveals the power of the gospel, the, how we are saved. He reveals His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we are all sorts of, the Bible is the Word of God. And it's living and it's active, it's the words of life. And when you read through the Bible, there's all sorts of powerful gems you can pull out of it. But sometimes those gems, you have to little, dig a little bit deeper. This is one of those cases. Take a look at verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you look at a map, I'm going to show a map of this. Uh, when Jesus lived his life, Galilee would have been at the top. He was from Nazareth and Galilee, that area. Samaria is in the middle in the yellow. And then at the bottom, of course, the Judea and Jerusalem. And so you look at that map and you think, well, the, straightest, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So it would make sense to go through Samaria. So why does it say he had to go through Samaria. Well, because a trip that this was a trip that God fearing Jews did not and would not typically make would be to go through Samaria. Because Samaritans and, and Jews were, were generational enemies. They had a lot of things that they were in disagreement about. The Jewish people, especially religious leaders, like like a rabbi like Jesus, would have looked down upon them and, and, and viewed them as, as less than. Samaritans were were half breeds. They were the product of intermarriage between the Jewish people and the nations around them. And so they were seen as kind of compromising and sacrificing their cultural identity and their religious heritage. I mean, that's why, for, in- for instance, the story of the Good Samaritan is, was so shocking to the listeners because the Samaritan was the hero. So in Jesus' day, God-fearing Jews would not go through Samaria. They would travel a full two days out of the way. It would be a three-day journey if they went straight through. But but they added two days on. You can see the dotted path. They They would typically go around it and add two full days to the journey just to avoid these people they viewed as unclean and unworthy and beneath them. But Jesus, it says, had to go through Samaria. I don't think it was because he had some sort of timeline he was trying to adhere to. I think it's because Jesus saw this as part of his mission to go into areas where people needed to to experience him, to know him, to bring the gospel, the good news that he was sharing, the kingdom, not just to his own people, but to the Gentiles and to those who are the outcasts and the oppressed and the ostracized. So when Jesus told the disciples, hey, guys, we're going to. We're going to take a shortcut. It's not really a shortcut, but we're going to take an unusual, we're going to take the road less traveled, we're going to go through Samaria. I'm sure it caused the disciples a lot of anxiety because this was their rabbi and he was, this just didn't compute. But their anxiety was about to be raised to another level because, continue the story, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And there's this parenthetical statement. His disciples had gone into town to buy food, so they weren't there. So it's just Jesus and this woman. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Again, for Jews do not associate with Samaritan. So she's saying, I know the rules. You know the rules. We're not supposed to have anything to do with each other. Jewish men do not talk to Samaritan women. And Jesus ignores that point, that her, her uh, concern, and answers her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our, our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank out right of himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Then Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she says, Sir, give me that water. I need that water. I want that water, so I don't have to come back here and draw water from the well again. So we can see from this conversation, it's kind of taking a deep turn here. The woman is not only physically thirsty. She's spiritually thirsty. She's she's parched. And then Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she says. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And she says, I can see you're a prophet. So her eyes are beginning to open, beginning to open to who Jesus is. Because he knows things about her he should not know. Intimate details. There's no way he could have known them. And she says, he must have this information from God. And then there's this interaction, we, won't, we don't have time to get into, but there's an interaction between her and him about the differences they have about re- their religion and how they practice their, 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 their faith and, and how they worship God. And then in verse 25, the one says, I know that Jesus, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain all this to me. So I'll understand where to worship and how to worship and all these things. And Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And, and then the disciples come back and they, they're surprised to find him talking with a woman. You can see that because of what they don't ask. They want to say, what do you want with her? Why are you talking with her? You're a rabbi. She's a Samaritan. What are you doing? Now, we don't know this woman's name. It's never told to us. But there are some things that we, can, we do know about her. She's been married five times, and she's living with a guy who's not her husband. Now, she could have been widowed five times and remarried pretty unlikely. We don't know why she went through five marriages. There's usually blame enough for both sides to share, but regardless, she's not going to, have to be having any 50-year anniversary celebrations. Okay. She's probably, it's a small town, she's probably got a, a little bit of a reputation in town, probably not going to be invited to the Ladies' Society luncheon at the country club. And we can infer this because back in verse 6, remember what it says? It says this is about noon. Now, why would that have been important? Why would they say it was about noon? Well, because women would come to the well in the morning when it was cool to get water. And that was a social time as well. They would bring their jars. They would, they would, they would talk as, to each other, share their stories, to get up to date on the gossip or what's going on with their, in their town or the synagogue, what, what's going on with the weather, what are we making for dinner. And they would do these things while they were drawing water. So it was a social time. But she's not there. She's there in the middle of the day at noon, the hottest part of the day. And so what we can infer from this is that Samaritans were avoided by the Jews, and this woman was avoided by the Samaritans. She is the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of the food chain, the least of the least. And Jesus talks with her. And the woman begins to change because of this, which will always happen when a person has a, a true encounter with Jesus Christ they always begin to change. So we're about done with the story. Look at verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. At some level, she knew. She knew that she couldn't hide anything from him, that she was totally exposed. He saw her in her best. He saw her in her worst. He knew her marital history. He knew her sexual history. He knew the things she'd done. Which is a scary thought, maybe. I mean, we're all sinners. And (laughs) Jesus knows everything we've ever done, right? But, but if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we come to him, it's, it's liberating because he knows everything about us and he still loves us. He still accepts us when we put our trust in him. And he treats her with dignity and he accepts water from her. He treats her with respect. And so she just has to go and testify about what she's seen, about what she's heard, about what she's experienced with this man named Jesus. And so she goes to town and says, come and see. Check things out. Check Jesus out for yourself. Maybe he's the Messiah. She's not even sure yet. But she says, you have to check this out. You have to check him out. And then people come to faith because of her testimony. And Jesus stays for two more days, which... Incidentally, if he'd taken the long way around, that would have been five days. So he used his time well. And people come to faith, many people come to faith, and it says, we have heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. And I'm sure the disciples never would have guessed at the beginning of that day when they started to walk into Samaria that Jesus would choose this woman to testify and be the evangelist to her own people. Now we may not have a story like this woman, but we all have a story. If we trusted in Christ, we all have a story of how God has changed our lives, of how God has intervened, of how God has saved us. And there's great power when we share our stories. First John 5:11 says, "And this is the testimony: God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son." The Apostle Paul proclaims, "For I'm not ashamed of the gospel." Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, which is exactly what happens with Jesus and the woman at the well. God, through the power of his Spirit, will use our stories and our testimonies to reach the people around us. There's a metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses in Scripture in 2 Corinthians. He says, you are a letter from Christ. I like that. You are a letter from Christ. In other words, our lives, our actions, our our words, our choices, our values, how we treat people. They are a letter from Christ. And people will often derive their view of Christ and the response to Jesus from what they read in us as Christians. As Gypsy Smith put it, that's a great name for a pastor, Gypsy Smith. There are five gospels, he says. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the life of the Christian. He says, most people will never read the first four. So what's your story? I would love to hear it. Really. So email me, if you would. Email me your stories of of how God has worked in your life, of how Christ has changed you, of how you've seen God show up in your life. Testify to what God has done in your life. Like the woman at the well, invite those around you. Come and see God. This man, this man who knows everything I've done, who I am, truly who I am, my best and worst, and yet he, he accepts me and he loves me. He wants a relationship with me. Come and see who he's all about.